Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We are in the middle of a discussion on substance use disorders, and in particular, nicotine. Uh, most individuals do not consider nicotine to be either illicit or, with that, the idea that uh, the substance could be of any harm to a person in terms of abuse or dependence. Nonetheless, um, as much as it might not be illicit, uh, because you can buy it, obviously, and with that, there's many ways to get nicotine. Um, but that still doesn't mean that it's not an addictive substance, uh, that there is not the potential then for use or misuse uh, to uh, end up harming oneself uh, as well as in the face of the harm. Again, as with all the other substance use, substance-related and addictive disorders, use and uh, dependence, abuse and dependence, use and misuse. Uh, not only will it get you in trouble, cause problems, but you can't stop it. Uh, nicotine has been around for a long time. Uh, it is certainly, uh, in and of itself, uh, relatively, again, harmless. Uh, I think the biggest struggle or problem with nicotine, though, is uh, the way that one would otherwise get it into their system, uh, the way that it is uh, gotten into one's body, the way we get it into our bodies, uh, particularly when it comes to cigarettes, uh, has been not only uh, the topic, topic of some controversy for some time, uh, but even so now, as much as cigarettes uh, are illegal, certainly when it comes to age, uh, they are also uh, Otherwise, uh, though legal, uh, <laughs> required to put a disclaimer on the packaging that it will kill one, uh, can kill one. Uh, not necessarily the nicotine, but the other things that are involved with cigarette smoking. So, so again, in some ways, nicotine itself is uh, certainly addictive. Uh, you can develop tolerance. It, it, it's not a controlled substance legally. Uh, but what makes it a topic of great conversation, nonetheless, is that the nicotine, the way that most of us have traditionally gotten it through the use of tobacco, and uh, as I've already said, cigarettes, uh, becomes uh, certainly a complicating factor. The idea that one would use then nicotine uh, or use the nicotine, the addictive properties of nicotine and tobacco, especially as a way to uh, otherwise sell a product and uh, before uh, vaping <laughs> of late uh, as an alternative, probably the predominant alternative to uh, smoking uh, as far as uh, nicotine ingestion would go. Uh, we did not have either the desire or the sophistication uh, to extract the nicotine, to be able to uh, 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 ingest it in a way that would give us an effect. Uh, but at the same time, even with the vaping, uh, we have discovered that there are so many byproducts that go along with vaping uh, that it makes that too 
uh, a dangerous subject, uh, or at least a, a danger in terms of subject uh, for study, uh, misuse, use. Uh, the DSM itself recognizes the potential for nicotine abuse and dependence, but does not necessarily acknowledge nicotine as a abused substance or a substance worthy of treatment. Uh, why I want to include it here, though, is because of the associated complications. Uh, nicotine would fall under the general category of stimulants, and uh, with that, nicotine has the potential to be a stimulant. So if it were to find some sort of place in the, the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, you would most likely find it under the heading or within the category of stimulant misuse and dependence. Uh, but nicotine is really not so much a stimulant even, although it has stimulant properties. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, nicotine can also cause one to or bring about a sense of sensation of relaxation, uh, depending on, again, the amount of use. Uh, there is a withdrawal that you have for those of you who do use nicotine. There's a withdrawal that uh, you go through. And uh, it is said that the withdrawal from the nicotine possibly could be as bad as would be then opiates. Now, we know what opiate withdrawal is like. So again, even though nicotine itself is not listed in uh, terms of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Substance-Related Disorders, uh, it, it Nonetheless, if it has that type of withdrawal potential, and it would have then the associated health risks, you'd have to put it somewhere. Um, and with that, the DSM calls it a tobacco-related disorder. Now, uh, again, the primary substance that otherwise causes this effect uh, the with the uh, uh, dependence, the uh, misuse, the withdrawal, which is tolerance and thus dependence, is the nicotine, but it's the health complications that make it uh, an area or at least a subject for uh, psychiatric treatment, intervention, and, and then consequently uh, why someone might come in for some sort of intervention. Last podcast uh, we spoke of, and I, I want to go back to this just for a moment, just to make sure before we move too much forward today in this discussion of nicotine, you cannot diagnose someone without actually seeing them. Uh, we ended our podcast last time with me uh, attempting to make that disclaimer. Uh, all the information that I provide via the podcast is for the expressed intent of informing and thus as much raising awareness or insight. Uh, and to some extent, you would have to then, taking that information, drawing inferences from it, uh, determine whether or not you think you may have some sort of substance-related 
uh, an addictive disorder or difficulty. Or again, as I've said all along throughout this particular series on this topic of substance-related and addictive disorders, uh, likely would know somebody who has a problem uh, and might go to them and say, hey, I've been listening to this podcast. Maybe you should too. But if you don't, at least I've been listening and this is what I'm taking from it. I think you may have a problem. The only person that can really make a qualified, a qualified, who's qualified, to make a diagnosis, has the qualification to make that diagnosis, uh, would have to see you in person to make that diagnosis. Uh, certainly, I hold the qualification as a licensed professional clinical counselor to be able to do that. My education, my training, my background, my experience, all of that. But I would have to see you face-to-face, -face, in person, or at least within the context of a, uh, if it were telehealth, something like that, a face-to-face -face intervention. And with that, there are other primary core providers that could do the same. We've mentioned them earlier in uh, this series. Uh, psychiatrists could do that. Social workers, licensed clinical social workers could do that. Licensed psychologists could do that. Licensed professional clinical counselors can do that. And there are some certifications that are standalone or as are limited specifically to, again, substance-related and addictive disorders. They, too, could make that call. Uh, and with that, the diagnosis, as we've been saying all along, is so crucial, a, a solid, sound, empirically solid, empirically sound diagnosis is crucial to the establishment of an effective, uh, appropriate treatment plan. But you would have to interview the person directly to do that. Uh, again, the two primary modes that we have at present would be face-to-face -face or via telehealth. Now, certainly I could do telehealth. Uh, I wanted to make sure I cleared that up. Uh, that is available, and if someone would want to contact me about that, and my license is appropriate to uh, practice within the state of your residence, regardless of, of where I'm at, if I hold license in that particular state, and this would go for all other professions, as I've mentioned them here in today on the podcast, if they're licensed independently in that state, and that license, the scope of practice includes a diagnosis and treatment of mental health, including substance-related uh, and addictive disorders, they can do that remotely via telehealth. Uh, I could arrange to do that. However, because not Everyone either holds license in all 50 states. Uh, I don't know anyone who does. That'd be kind of formidable. The licensure laws are a little different uh, from state to state. It'd be a challenge to do that. I think the intention, too, would not be to be able to practice in all 50 states as much as it would be where you practice, uh, to be able to do that according to the standards, the highest best practice standards, as well as the highest level of licensure, educational requirements, experience included in that particular state or region 
in which you practice. It was never set up or intentioned for there to be uh, some sort of a internet system that would allow us to treat people around the world, around the globe. However, that's really what we have. Maybe the day will come when there'll be a universal licensure across all states, more so across all nations and countries, more so around the world, where a licensed psychologist could diagnose and treat via the internet, via telehealth, telemedicine, as much also than any of those accompanying providers such as licensed professional clinical counselors, the same, licensed clinical social workers, the same, um, and with that then even those certified addictions counselors potentially the same, but that's not where we are. Hence, when I usually close out the program, I say, if you want to contact me, and if I should not be able to make that diagnosis or arrange to meet with you to make a diagnosis and initiate treatment, I'll make sure I find someone who can. Uh, really, that's what I am acknowledging, is that uh, there is many, many different states, countries out there, Obviously, there is no singular person who I know of that practices in all of those states and would have that capability. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll get to a point where we feel comfortable enough, especially with not only regional differences, nationality, national differences, uh, different types of cultures that go with the nationalities for the sake of uh, certainly diversity to be versed well enough in all of those to make sure that we are most respectful and honorable of the different conditions, the different uh, ways, perspectives that individuals look at the use of substances uh, as for recreational and or where the line would be drawn. S some countries do not have as stringent standards as well when it comes to illicit substances uh, you might be able to buy uh, as unfortunately many who are addicted have discovered uh, China for instance just using that as an example uh, might sell a product that in the United States is illegal you could order it online you could receive it at your house uh, the Chinese or the manufacturer in China would not be culpable. It's legal to sell it there. Uh, but it would be illegal in the United States. That's sort of a word of warning. Uh, individuals who are, again, addicts or who practice such, do such things, practices, engage in such practices on a regular basis with, for knowledge, they're illegal are just that, criminal, in doing that. You don't want to do that. Uh, if you're in the United States of America, then it's illegal to import controlled substances and violate the otherwise state and federal laws that would uh, reflect your particular state, jurisdiction, or you run the risk of going to jail. Uh, don't do it. Uh, again, go through the appropriate channels 
we represent, I represent the treatment side of it. Uh, but only when it becomes a substance-related disorder or substance-related and addictive disorder. Uh, those that prescribe the medications, uh, if they're controlled substances, that's their particular scope of practice and their particular license to do that that, that is uh, of most importance, prominence. If they're qualified and trained, if they have done a thorough evaluation or diagnosis uh, and they've made the determination that you're appropriate for a particular medication, they take on the responsibility and they are responsible not only to you, but their respective, again, licensure boards, which are a form of law, legislation uh, at the state and or federal levels. And there's many layers of that. It's ethical practice standards as well as best practice standards that need to be taken into consideration. But on the treatment side of that, it's the same sort of principle. But should you need help or assistance, I could not provide that diagnosis or arrange for that uh, through telehealth or otherwise person-to-person -person intervention to make the diagnosis and initiate treatment. We'll help you find someone. And that basically is the message. Uh, when it comes to, again, substances like nicotine, or as the American Psychiatric Association does not have a category specific to nicotine, my opinion is it most likely would fall under the category of a stimulant, but it has other properties as well that might make you consider it to be under a different category of uh, substance or effect. That's how we, again, categorize the substances based on the physiological effects, what they make you feel like, how they make you behave, how they make you act. Uh, but as much as, again, nicotine isn't going to be found, you're going to find tobacco use disorder. And so, as with all the other categories of substance-related and addictive disorders, I'm going to read you the diagnostic criterion for tobacco use disorder. And again, you're going to recognize it's the same basic protocol, I guess would be another way of calling it or describing it or an additional way of describing it, but, but even more than a protocol, as in how you would go about making the diagnosis, the actual features of it are universal when it comes to substance-related and addictive disorders. Regardless of the substance, it looks the same. It's parsimony. It, it would allow us to apply the standard universally, which again simplifies much in the way of, of trying to make that appropriate diagnosis as well as the appropriate treatment or corresponding treatment recommendations. So for tobacco use disorder, the American Psychiatric Association starts with criterion A, or the first criterion, to be a problematic pattern of tobacco use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress as manifested by at least two of the following, occurring within a 12-month period. Additional criterion, or under A, or that first primary criterion, comes then 
Tobacco is often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended. There is a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control tobacco use. A great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain or use tobacco. There is a craving or a strong desire or urge to use tobacco. Recurrent tobacco use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. And with example, interference with work. There is continued tobacco use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of tobacco. Again, with example, arguments with others about about one's tobacco use. Important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or forfeited or reduced because of tobacco use. Recurrent tobacco use in situations in which it is physically hazardous An example would be smoking in bed. Increases the risk of a fire hazard. And if you're asleep, you might not know it until it otherwise might be too late and escape is impossible or unavailable. And it might take your life. Tobacco use is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by tobacco. Now, there should be an example given here. There's not. But if you have lung cancer, you should probably stop smoking. It may be that the lung cancer, the smoking caused the lung cancer, but whether it did or didn't, smoking exacerbates the problem. You may have other respiratory problems which smoking complicates. You shouldn't be smoking. The individual that may need assistance, though, with not smoking would be someone who has a tobacco-related disorder, which would then again establish a need for intervention and care. The diagnosis, the person would would, would meet with a provider who is qualified licensed and qualified to provide the diagnosis and make the appropriate treatment recommendations and hopefully would at least mitigate that as a risk or a complicating factor. Tolerance, as defined by either of the following, a need for markedly increased amounts of tobacco is uh, to achieve the desired effect or tolerance as a markedly diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of tobacco. Tolerance just meaning that the body tolerates the nicotine, again, the primary psychoactive chemical in tobacco use or tobacco, to the point where it takes more and more of the nicotine which would then be through the tobacco, or now might be through vaping. And again, I'll go back to something I said at the very beginning of of today's podcast. 
vaping has not been around long enough to find its way into the DSM. I'm sure there will be some modifications in future editions of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual to include nicotine ingestion via vaping as much as it would be through tobacco. Why? Not necessarily because nicotine is an illicit substance in and of itself or that it has the potential to cause that level of harm to the point of killing you, but the vaping now has been discovered to have similar risk factors, at least similar in the sense it affects respiration, the respiratory system, uh, second-handedly the cardiovascular system, and the idea that there are byproducts or maybe directly other products, chemicals, that are in vape cartridges that will then otherwise harm one's lungs to the point of compromising their ability to live, to remain alive, their lung functioning. Withdrawal as manifested by either of the following. The characteristic withdrawal symptoms for tobacco or with that then tobacco for or a closely related substance such as nicotine is taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms. So again, tolerance just is basically once more a need to increase the amount of the psychoactive substance because the body makes adjustments via the homeostatic response and with that then, once you achieve a certain level, once you stop using the substance, the psychoactive substance, you will also then, because the body has compensated in such a manner or fashion physiologically via homeostatic response or homeostasis, you're going to go through withdrawal. Now, as with other substance-related and addictive disorders, there are subcategories uh, early remission after full criterion for tobacco use disorder were previously met. None of the criterion for tobacco use disorder has been met for at least three months. But for less than 12 months, with the exception that the craving or a strong desire urge to use to tobacco may be met. So you can actually have a psychological sort of element or dimension, though craving is more of a physiological response that continues even in full remission. Again, much like opiates, opioids, there is a craving, and the craving can last years. <laughs> there may be episodes of craving years after one's last use of the psychoactive substance. Sustained remission after full criterion for tobacco use disorder were previously met. None of the criterion for tobacco use disorders had been met at any time during a period of 12 months or longer, with the exception, again, of craving. Now, just as, again, with opiates or opioids, 
there is such a thing as maintenance therapy, which the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic and Statistical Manual encourages providers to acknowledge. It speaks much to really on a physiological level, more so on a physiological level, where anyone might be at any particular time in the recovery as it pertains to the tolerance and withdrawal. Because on maintenance therapy, the individual is taking a long-term maintenance medication, such as nicotine replacement medication, patches, or otherwise uh, any other method of, again, uh, taking nicotine, and no criterion for tobacco use disorder have been met for that class of medication except tolerance to or withdrawal from the nicotine replacement medication. So what this really means is, though, the person is no longer meeting criterion for a tobacco use disorder, <laughs> but once more, they still are addicted to the nicotine. It is not illicit use because it's prescribed, which is some of what we got into a few moments ago. If a qualified, licensed professional, provider, within their scope of practice, writes a prescription for, in this case, medication assist, nicotine, nicotine patches, to help with tobacco-related misuse and abuse, to the point where the person could otherwise, if continued use, in continued use, if with continued use, further complicate or compromise the risk factors either for lethality or just general health concerns. They may write a prescription. You're not considered disordered, however, one, because there is no such thing as nicotine use disorder. But secondly, you would not be considered appropriate for diagnosis of a substance-related and addictive disorder, if only because it's prescribed. Once more, medication-assist treatment is the prescription of a synthetic opiate, albeit combined with uh, a blocker. However, if prescribed, it's not illegal, it's not Subject for, again, diagnosis as a substance-related disorder or addictive disorder and or treatment. Individuals that are on opioid maintenance, long-term prescription of opioids, as long as there is a legitimate need for the prescription and a qualified provider, in this case medical provider, physician, within their scope of practice, is able to write that prescription and is willing to take on the responsibilities that are associated in management of that, you are not going to be considered for a diagnosis of substance-related and addictive disorder. It may indeed have all appearances of that. The person may have misuse and could also have dependence tolerance and or withdrawal. They may also be having all sorts of problems 
as with, again, diagnostic criterion for a substance-related and addictive disorder. Nonetheless, if it is prescribed, it is not illegal because it is covered by that prescription, the physician who is writing that prescription, and in that then, the individual is not appropriate to be diagnosed with a substance-related and addictive disorder. And probably so, may need some counseling, but it would not be to the end of removing or stopping or ceasing the use of the prescribed substance, the psychoactive substance, because, again, it's under a physician's orders. It gets a little complicated, as I said again in today's podcast. Many of you know individuals who are having problems via the use of, by proxy, of continued use of opiates. They may actually be prescribed the opioid. There may be all sorts of complications that are appropriate for treatment, behavioral health care. I would not diagnose, however, the condition because of the prescription as a substance-related and addictive disorder. However, I may diagnose any associated conditions, such as depression, such as anxiety, such as an inability to properly regulate or manage one's emotions, emotional dysregulation, caused by either a medical condition, even as the prescription then is to treat that condition, or standalone, independent, or with that, I may allude to the fact that these are complications that are associated with the use of particular medicine. But that does not mean that I am treating the person in the way of attempting to stop their use of that particular substance, common sense. Why? Because it is under physician order, and the physician has determined, even with that risk or even with the actual manifestation of these associated conditions, possibly a syndrome of sorts, that it is still worthwhile to prescribe that medicine. There's more value to prescribing it than there would be to withholding it. It is more beneficial to the patient to have it even with these associated complications. But I would treat the complications as I have diagnosed those. I would do the diagnosing of those through a face-to-face -face encounter. Most traditionally, it would be in my office. For those that are geographically challenged, who could not get to me via the office, again, I might do that through telemedicine, telehealth, but I would only do that within the states that otherwise I am independently licensed to provide that care 
and it is under that licensure within, considered to be within my scope of practice. I hold an unrestricted license in all the aspects of scope of practice when it comes to diagnosing and treating mental and substance-related and addictive disorders, regardless of the state that I'm licensed within. So I would not have any restrictions, except we would have to have that person who I am diagnosing and treating be a resident of one of the states I'm licensed in. Same would go for psychiatry, psychology, and clinical social work. Licensed professional clinical counselors are on par when it comes to the diagnosis and treatment in context of psychotherapy with psychiatry, psychology, clinical social work. They would all have the same scope of practice when it comes to the psychotherapy, the diagnosing, the uh, comprehensive diagnostics, the treatment recommendations, as I would, they would be in, we would all be interchangeable, in other words. Psychiatrists would be able to prescribe medication where all of the others, psychologists, professional clinical counselors, clinical social workers, would not, in most instances, be capable of writing a prescription. Some states have allowed psychologists, licensed psychologists, to do a minimum amount, very restrictive, very limited scope of practice when it comes to prescriptions, mostly for antidepressant medications. One, to reduce the pressure on an already overtaxed system where there is a shortage of psychiatrists and because most of the antidepressant medications within the scope of their practice to write that prescription are not, don't have lethality in a way that would represent any significant risk to the general public. They're fairly safe and, relatively speaking, benign in the sense of risk or lethality. So, once that is established, that diagnosis of depression or anxiety or any other of the uh, psychiatric conditions that are in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual may be concurrent, call that dual diagnosis, potentially concomitant with their use of a substance and all appropriate for care, but the substance itself, if prescribed by a physician, is not considered to be uh, any sort of substance-related or addictive disorder. So as you might imagine, nicotine has then a great potential for complicating and representing a major consideration in the treatment of both health as well as general behavioral health conditions. But standalone, it is not considered problematic enough to have been labeled either a controlled substance or warranting a diagnosis 
in and of itself. Having said that, though, it is as difficult in many, many ways as would be possibly one of the most difficult of all the substances in the APA, American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM, Opioid Use Disorder. And with that, individuals sometimes do require a controlled environment in which to eliminate the use of tobacco. So if the individual is in an environment where access to tobacco is restricted, that too is an important qualifier that we make or put on the diagnosis of tobacco use disorder. Now, with all the other substance-related and addictive disorders, there is mild, moderate, and severe. Mild would be presence of two or three of the aforementioned criterion or symptoms, moderate, four or five symptoms, and severe, six or more criterion or symptoms met. Now, just to give you an idea of what tobacco withdrawal really looks like, I'd like to spend a few moments covering that. To qualify for a diagnosis of tobacco withdrawal, and this would be most likely in an acute sort of state, there would have had to have been daily use of tobacco for at least several weeks, again, to build up to a level of nicotine as to represent not only tolerance or the body's compensating with tolerance through the homeostatic, again, homeostatic response. But with that, where there's tolerance, when you stop using the psychoactive substance, you're going to have tobacco withdrawal. The moment you stop using, abrupt cessation of tobacco use or reduction even in the amount of the tobacco used followed within 24 hours by four or more of the following signs or symptoms would indicate or be indicative of tobacco withdrawal. Here we go. Most of you who have used tobacco are very familiar. And if you've not used it directly, who knows someone who has used tobacco and attempted to quit, you're going to be very familiar with these symptoms. Irritability, frustration, or anger. Again, associated psychological condition, anxiety, difficulty concentrating, increased appetite, restlessness, depressed mood, and insomnia. Now, as much as any of these symptoms, or many of these, I should say it that way, if not all of these, could be attributable to another major psychiatric condition, behavioral health condition, such again as depression, anxiety, uh, mood disorder, emotional regulation disorder, or dysregulation, uh, bipolar even <laughs> disorder, the tobacco would not be then the primary 
the tobacco withdrawal, would not be the primary diagnosis. The primary diagnosis would be these other conditions, these other major, what we formerly called Axis one conditions, the primary reason for treatment. But it would be, again, a complication. It would be additionally diagnosed. And it would, in that being a complication, add to, amplify some of these other symptoms. The signs or symptoms that I've just read cause clinically significant distress or impairment and again, social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. And once more, as I just got through saying, the signs or symptoms are not attributable, the signs or symptoms are not attributable to another medical condition and are not better explained by another mental disorder, which could also include intoxication or withdrawal from another substance. Interestingly enough, individuals who use one substance tend to also find other substances to use that are somewhat either synergistically so compatible to intensify the effect of the primary psychoactive substance or are used to mitigate the withdrawal effects in some ways or the side effects even in some ways of the primary psychoactive substance. Nicotine does that. With that, nicotine can again be as much uh, with the concentration, it can enhance your concentration. So it's got some of those stimulant properties, but it also can relax you. With that, nicotine can also elevate your mood. It can also, in that same sort of stimulant way, cause you to not require as much sleep or disrupt your sleep cycle sufficient to create insomnia, especially, again, as you're going through withdrawal. So when it comes to nicotine, it's more what goes along with it and how it interacts with other primary behavioral health and health concerns that make it important as a consideration when we discuss substance-related and addictive disorders. And along with that, as we'll get into in our next podcast, the interventions or the treatments, though they may not be as exhaustive as you would see or as we've discussed with other American Society of Addiction Medicine interventions or levels of care, levels of interventions or care, as with that matrix, nonetheless, there's some overlap or there's some compatibility, and we'll take a look at that in our next podcast. Uh, we'll take much time to spend on that or spent on that, but we will address them. Once more, word with Dr. Michael David Clay is intentioned to inform and enlighten you, <laughs> the listener. Maybe you have a problem as with this information or this awareness, insight, enlightenment. Maybe it's someone you know. But the general intent, besides informing and generating insight, 
as well then identifying a need would be to also assist you in knowing where to go to get the help. And all of those core providers I mentioned in today's podcast and in other podcasts, this is not the first time we've spoken of these things. I just wanted to go back and make sure that that was established clearly. Any of those core providers can be of assistance. The most important thing to do, though, is heed the warnings. Because once more, these substance-related disorders, substance-related and addictive disorders, as identified by the American Psychiatric Association, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, are progressive. The earlier the intervention, the greater the success at hopefully arresting not only the misuse and should it have become an issue of tolerance and withdrawal and dependence, should it also then over a period of time created additional complications, should it have exacerbated or began to manifest itself in other primary behavioral health concerns such as depression, anxiety, should there be health concerns, relationship concerns, uh, work-related concerns that have begun to, be, uh, to emerge, to become a problem, emerged, then the sooner you identify, seek help, get treatment, stop the progression, the greater the chances are that you will be able to return or be restored to at least a level of functioning in all of those ways as where you started the use of the substance. But if not, because again, with progression, it gets harder and more difficult to attain even that level of functioning. Though compromised, it is better to arrest it than to go further into it because the further you go, so to speak, the level of hope of restoring any sort of measurable level of functioning that's adaptive or that as is uh, at least commensurate with what was there before, quickly can deteriorate. The risk factors quickly can increase. And as we've said many, many times before in these podcasts, in this series, we're not just talking about compromised health here as we discuss this, but we're also talking about the potential for Many of these substances, or as with that idea of a syndrome or a complex, having lethality attached to it. A person, for instance, who is depressed, who drinks alcohol, doesn't do anything but intensify their depression, which could either lead to suicide because of depression, suicidality, increase that risk of harm to self, maybe harm to others, most likely suicidality with hopelessness and helplessness, despair. But alcohol itself, when you use it as a primary way of coping with depression, when you stop it or you would not be able to get the alcohol, you also run the risk of going through seizures, convulsions, which could effectually cause your central nervous system, your neurological system, 
to stop functioning. Should you drink to such a point of excess as well to stop your respiratory system from functioning, you can die in an intoxicated state. You're also at greater risk of harming others secondhand, inadvertently, such as we've mentioned again earlier before with situations such as driving under the influence. So to make the point clear, lethality is not that far of a reach. As you progress, you get closer to it. If you can stop it before it goes to the point of tolerance and withdrawal, do so. Prevention. Primary care. If you have to intervene immediate to a problem that you did not see coming or you could not or did not prevent your use of the substance actually put you in a libelous situation, secondary care, treating it, stopping it then is better than tertiary care, which is primary, secondary, you've tried to stop possibly, had several interventions, they've not worked, and now you're seeing the unfolding of how this psychoactive substance or combination of substances or mental health or health conditions, confluence of all of this coming together, has destroyed your life. That's why we do these podcasts. That's why we're offering this information. I do hope that we inform you. I hope you've gotten something from the podcast. As always, I post the email address. Uh, contact me. I would love to communicate with you. Should you not, at least join me or us for our next installment of Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. And until then, uh, be careful. Uh, you don't know what otherwise might happen if you are actively using, and we want to stop that before, again, it becomes such a complication or a problem that we really are too late. Again, thank you for joining me today on Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. And again, you're invited to come back for our next podcast and hope to uh, join you then soon.